sometime back, there was an article that was published um, on the Guardian website, and it was all about regrets. Um, the article uh, was inspired by something the author had posted on social media a few days before. Uh, the writer of the article had gone on uh, to what was it at that time, Twitter and Facebook, and, and simply asked uh, her audience this question, what is your greatest regret? What is your greatest regret? And then it just blew up. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of responses began to flood in. And, and those responses, some of them were lighthearted, uh, but most of them was really the nitty and gritty uh, of life. Uh, they were brutally honest, and those responses became ultimately deeply insightful. And, and even though the posts that people responded with, even though they were diverse in the sense that they spanned virtually the entire spectrum of the human existence, I mean, every conceivable regret that you could probably think of, uh, people spoke about it and people told their story. But even though the, the posts were very diverse as far as people's individual regrets, there was an undeniable, you know, pattern that emerged. There, there was a theme. Uh, there was something that, you know, connected all of them together. And, and the idea or the theme or the thread that kind of tied them all together was, was this idea that our greatest regrets are almost always connected to a fear that keeps us from doing what's good for us because it feels too hard for us. Uh, when you took all of those responses and you kind of thought about them and, and you dug beneath the surface and you got to the bottom layers of the onion, it was our greatest regrets. Your greatest regrets, my greatest regrets are almost always connected to a fear that keeps us from doing what's good for us because it feels too hard for us. Um, and it's a reminder, it's a reminder for all of us that many times in life, the hardest things in life are the things that are most worth doing in life. Now, just think about that for a moment, that many times in life, the hardest things in life are the things most worth doing doing in life. And, and you know this is true, and I know this is true, and we've all experienced this. Um, we find it hard to budget our money, even though we, we know it's good for us. Uh, so we don't budget our money because even though it's good for us, it's a bit too hard for us to do, so we don't. Uh, we find it you know, hard to exercise, even though we know that exercise is good for us, so what do we do? We, we don't exercise because it's too hard for us, even though it's good for us. We know that eating right, we know that it's good for us. The doctor tells us so, you know, everybody tells us so. We've been told so since we were children, but yet it's hard for us to eat right. We're so busy and we're, we're moving here and moving there and we're traveling and we're working, we're just grabbing this and grabbing that and we're trying to do what's convenient. And, and even though it's what's good for us, because we find it too hard for us, we don't do what's good for us. And we do this all the time, and really the applications are endless. But the question then becomes, why is it, why is it we often find it hard to do the things that are good for us? You ever thought about that? Why is it that we often find it hard to do the things that are good for us? And sometimes we could even take it to the superlative, that things that are best for us. Why are the things that are best for us often difficult for us to do or hard for us to do? It's good for us to let go. It's good for us to let go sometimes, but sometimes it's hard to let go. So what do we do? We don't let go. It's good for us to get out of our comfort zones, right? There's nothing good that comes out of just remaining in our comfort zones, but because for some of us, it's really hard to do. It's really hard for us to get outside of our comfort zone. What do we do? We retreat into our comfort and we forfeit so much good. It's good for you and it's good for me to question my assumptions and your assumptions and my conclusions and your conclusions on important matters. It's good for us to do that. 
but it's hard for us to do that. It's uncomfortable for us to do that. And because it's hard and uncomfortable, we just don't do it. And so we get settled in our assumptions. We get settled in our conclusions. Even though there's a possibility, we could be wrong. It's good for us to go the second mile. And I know this because Jesus said it's good for us to go the second mile. But you know what going the second mile is? It's hard. It's hard to go the second mile. So you know what we do? We find it easier just to go the first mile. Some of us find it even easier not to go the first mile. And so we get to the first mile and it's like Jesus said, it's, it's just good to go ahead and go the second mile. And even though it's good for us because Jesus said so, it's hard for us to do so we don't do it. And we forfeit what is good for us and what is best for us. It's good for us to forgive and move on. I mean, we know this. Not only is that a biblical thing, not only is that a Jesus thing, not only is that a Christian thing, that's a psychology thing, that's a health thing, that's a science thing. We know it's absolutely good for us and best for us to forgive and move on. But you know what can be hard to do? Forgive and move on. And so even though it's hard for us to forgive and move on, we know we should, but yet we don't. And so we forfeit what's good and what's best. It's good for us, especially in this season. Uh, really, it's good in every season. It's good for you, it's good for me, it's good for us to tell the people that we love that we love them and why we love them. It's good for us to do that. But you know what? For some of us, our personalities, we're a bit awkward. We're a bit, you know, a bit weird. Some of us, um, um, meaning me and, and maybe you. Uh, and even though we know it's good to tell the people that we love that we love them and not only that we love them, but why we love them, we know that's good. It's good for us, it's good for them, but you know what it is? It's hard to do. It's hard to do sometimes, and you know what we do? We just, we just don't do it. It's good for us to try new things. It is, it's good to try new things. Uh, it's good for you to try new things. And, and many of you are, are just like me and, and we're like each other. We, we can be like an old dog. You know, we just like old tricks, not new ones. We just like the old stuff that we're familiar with, but it's good for us to try new things. But you know what, for some of you, for some of us, that can be hard. So you know what we do? We don't try new things. It's good for us to relax. It's good for us to loosen up. It's good for us to let down our guard. It's good for us to forge deep connections to other people. It's good for us to forge deep connections with new people. But you know what? It's not easy. It's hard. It's difficult. So you know what we do? We don't do it. Even though we know it's good for us, because it's too hard for us, we just say, mm, I'll pass. And in the end, a lot of us, we end up living our lives. We let what is hard for us rob us of what is good for us. We let what is hard for us rob us of what is best for us. Now, I want you to hold on to this thought uh, because we're gonna come back to it at the very end of the message. But today is the final part of our series, um, What God Can't Do. God Can't Do Anything. Like I said earlier, I've called this series Every Name Under the Sun. And all of them fit. Uh, but the actual title of the series is God can't do anything. Uh, and we've been talking about this for about the past seven weeks. We've talked about the fact that God can't learn, that God knows you, and the one who knows you best is the one who loves you most. And before you were ever born, God knew your whole story. If your life was a book, he'd already read it. If your life was a movie, he'd already watched it. And he decided to love you even though he knew everything about your life, every sort of detail, every up and down, every wrong turn, every right turn. And we talked about how God can't learn. He can't learn anything new about you. He can't learn, learn anything about 
about me that's new, God can't learn. And then we talked about that God can't change his mind. And then we talked about God can't lie and God can't forsake us. And then last week we talked about that God can't give up on us. We've talked about how God can't waste our pain. He can't waste your pain. He can't waste my pain. He's gonna bring good out of it. So we've been talking about some really important things, but but here's how I wanna close the series. And, and this series could have really gone on for 12 weeks, 14 weeks, 15 weeks. But here's what I want us to think about today. And this is, this is what I want us to, uh, to chew on for a minute. God can't keep promises he never made. God can't keep promises he never made. Now we talked about the fact that God can't lie. And the fact when God says something, you can count on it, you can bank on it. But God can't keep a promise. God can't keep promises that he never made. Now, sometimes people get angry at God. Sometimes people get disappointed with God. Sometimes people get disillusioned with God because he didn't keep a promise. But the problem with that is they are mad at God. They're disillusioned with God. They're disappointed in God because he didn't keep a promise that he never made to begin with. Every promise God makes, God keeps. Every promise God makes, God keeps. Every promise God makes, God keeps. Let's all just say that together. Every promise God makes, God keeps. But God cannot keep a promise that he never made. He will not, he cannot keep a promise he never made. For example, God never promised you, God never promised me, God never promised us that faith would protect us from trouble in this life. He never promised us that faith would protect us from pain in this life. He never promised us that faith would protect us from sickness in this life. He never promised that faith would keep you from diabetes or from cancer or from stroke or from heart attack or chronic illness. He never promised that. So don't get disillusioned or angry or disappointed with God when trouble strikes or when pain hits or when sickness knocks on the door because God never promised that. God never promised personal success. He didn't promise me that, he didn't promise you that. Uh, now God's not against success, but God just didn't promise you and I personal success. God never promised us, unfortunately, answers to all of our questions. And some of us, we've got a lot of questions and it's a bit frustrating we want answers to questions and we feel like they're legitimate, we feel like they're important questions, but God never promised me and God never promised you answers to all of our questions. And here's one, you don't think about this one, but you already know it's true. God never promised we'd be perfect in this life. God never promised that you'd be perfect in this life, but I know here's the real shocker. God never promised that the people around you would be perfect either. So while we are so surprised when people around us are imperfect, when people around us sin and act like sinners because they are sinners who, good, who are good at sinning, uh, while we're surprised at that, God never promised we'd be perfect or even next to perfect in this life. Uh, God never promised to answer all your prayers. God never promised to answer all my prayers the way that I want him to answer those prayers. God never promised freedom from the struggle that some of us have with sin that some of us have with particular thoughts or particular feelings. God never promised us freedom from those struggles. It's part of living in this world. It's part of being on this earth, living under the curse of sin that's been a part of the story of the human race since the Garden of Eden. He, he never promised, unfortunately, clarity on difficult issues or situations. 
He just didn't. Sometimes there's difficult situations and, and trying to get perfect clarity about it, trying to get settled on a particular way of thinking on it can be difficult because it's just not completely clear. God never promised clarity. He never, he never promised ease in this life. He, he didn't say it was gonna be easy. He never promised that life was gonna be simple. He never promised us that complication would not be part of our individual experiences. So here's the thing. Don't try to hold God accountable to promises he never made. We should just all remind ourselves of that quite often. Trevor, don't try to hold God accountable to promises he never made. Don't get disappointed, disillusioned, or angry with God when he doesn't keep a promise that he never made to begin with. So now for Christians, we gotta be careful about this because we, we can do this and we can do this without thinking about it. We can do this without intending to. Uh, I, I've heard Christians do this in my entire life. I've done this throughout my life at particular points and times. We've gotta be careful when reading the scripture. You say, be careful reading the scripture? Oh yeah, you better be careful reading the scripture. There's a reason why the scripture calls itself a double-edged sword. You better be careful how you handle a double-edged sword. You can do just as much harm as you can help with a double-edged sword. So you better be careful how you hold that double-edged sword, how you read the scripture and be careful, be careful, listen to me. Be careful when you read the scripture that you do not claim somebody else's promise as your own that never belonged to you to begin with. Let me give you a couple examples. Abraham, the father of faith. Uh, God came to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, and says, Abraham, I want you to leave her. I want you to leave what's familiar. I want you to leave your comfort zone. I want you to go to a place. I will show you where it is when you get there. I just want you to go. But if you'll go, I'm gonna make your name great. I'm gonna make you a great nation. That's not my promise. I can't wake up tomorrow morning on Monday and say, God, I just wanna thank you that you promised me that you'd make my name great and make me the father of a great nation. No, Father, I don't have a great nation. I don't even have a great name. And he was like, not your promise, bub. That was Abraham's. I'm gonna bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. That's not my promise. That's not your promise. That's not the church's promise. That was God's promise to Abraham and his descendants, Israel. Uh, God told Joshua, he said, I promise you, Joshua, if you'll just put the tip of your feet in the Jordan River, I'm gonna part the water. I'm telling you, I don't care how much you claim that promise. You can go down to Laurel Lake, Lake Cumberland. You can go down to the Rock Castle River today and you can put your big toe in, your second toe in. You can put all the toes in. You can jump in, but I'm gonna tell you, I will bet all my money in the pockets against all the money in your pockets. That water ain't going anywhere but over your head because it's not your promise. It's not our promise. It was Joshua's promise. Or what about this one? This will be uncomfortable for some of you because this is the one Christians we have just, we have abused and misused this. How about 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14? If my people, if my people, and we should think, well, who's, who's my people in this particular passage? My people is Israel. If my people Israel who are called by name will call, will call upon my name, if they will humble themselves and pray, I will hear them from heaven I will forgive their sin and I will heal, heal their land. That's Israel's promise, not ours. You say, what? I, I've got it on a coffee cup at home. I, I've got it on a t-shirt. I've quoted this to other people. 
Matter of fact, I watch Save America rallies and they quote 2 Chronicles 7, 14 and they say, America, if we'll just call upon the name of the Lord, he'll heal our land. I'm like, okay, is it the continental 48? Is it the 50 states? You know, you got Alaska, it's kind of, what land is it? It's not our promise. Now, is it good to call upon the Lord? Is it good to call upon him in faith? Yes, but it's not our promise. We have to be careful. My point is we have to be careful in commandeering promises that were never made to us. And the greatest threat of this is often found in the Old Testament. Claiming a promise that isn't ours, that God didn't make to us, that has nothing to do with us. If we assume it's our promise, if we claim it is our promise, even if we do it with good intentions and with great faith, when God doesn't keep that promise, that promise that he never made, that promise that never belonged to you, the risk is that your faith and my faith could end up wounded and shattered. There's a lot of people disappointed with God that grew up in the church and the reason they got disappointed with God and disillusioned and they walked away, it's because they tried to hold God accountable to a promise that he never made. They claimed it as their own. They assumed that faith had the power to abolish sickness. Does God have the power and the authority and the ability to heal sickness? Absolutely. Did God promise that if you had enough faith that he would do that? Certainly not. So don't try to hold God accountable to a promise that he never made. Now, the good news is this. When Jesus showed up, after the Old Testament, as we read, you know, through the scriptures in our English Bible, when the New Testament opens up, Jesus has showed up on the pages of history to do something very specific. And Jesus showed up onto the stage of history, not to revamp or improve the old. Jesus came to inaugurate something new. Jesus came to start something new, something better. What Jesus called in the upper room with his disciples, the new covenant, the new covenant that would be sealed by the shedding of his blood and by his death. Now, if there's a new covenant, stick with me for just a moment, because this is something we all need to have a framework for. If there's a new covenant, there must be a what? An old covenant. Jesus didn't come to revamp or improve the old covenant. Jesus came to fulfill the old covenant. Jesus came to be the fulfillment of old covenant promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to Israel. Jesus came to begin a new covenant. The old covenant with Israel was a conditional covenant based on law. In other words, Israel, if you do this, God says, I will do that. If you'll do this, I'll do that. If you do this, I'll do that. The new covenant was not a conditional covenant. It was an unconditional covenant based on grace, not law. In other words, God takes full responsibility. What he says he will do in the new covenant, he will do regardless of how you do or I do. He's gonna keep his promises regardless of my performance or your performance. There's no, if you do this, I'll do that. God says, I'm taking full responsibility and what I've spoken, it is truth. I cannot lie. And my words of promise are your hope. And so this new covenant, which is an unconditional covenant based on grace, it's a covenant that has better promises. It has better, it has better parameters to it than what the old covenant. So with that said, just want to say this and be real clear about it. Be cautious of claiming old covenant promises as a new covenant follower of Jesus, because you run the risk of getting disillusioned 
disappointed and angry with God. You will claim somebody's promise for yourself that God never made to you and God never made to me. Now, I can see that you're thinking, and that's a good thing. To hear that, I think I know what a lot of us are feeling and what a lot of us are thinking because I think it's the natural thing. I think it's the human thing. To hear what I've just got through talking about for the past couple of minutes, it's like, oh, I feel like we're losing something. I feel like we're missing out on something. I feel like we're having to give up something. I feel like, I feel like we're settling for something less. I, I love some of those promises. I love, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Now I've tried to claim that promise on some church people over the years, but it didn't work. Uh, Unfortunately, I guess fortunate for them, but it wasn't, it wasn't a promise to me. And so if we try to do that, we run the risk of being disappointed, angry, and disillusioned with God. But it feels like we're giving up something. It feels like we're missing out on something. That somehow we're limiting the scope of God's promises or the extent of our hope on those promises. But fortunate for us, there's a whole book in the New Testament all about this. And it's the book called Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is basically one big sermon. And it's one big sermon written with Judaism in the backdrop. It's one big sermon, you know, with the history of Israel, you know, as the background context. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says. I'm just gonna give you one particular verse and kind of unpack it a little bit and then run towards what we're gonna talk about. He says, but in fact, but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received, the ministry that Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one. He's been talking about old covenant Israel. He's been talking about Old Testament Israel. He's been talking about Judaism. He's been talking about the temple. He's been talking about the sacrificial system. He's been talking about the law. He's been talking about all of those things. And he says the ministry of the old covenant priesthood, it was a good thing. And it fulfilled what it was intended to do. But the ministry of Jesus, the priesthood of Jesus is superior to the priesthood in the old covenant. And not only that, but the covenant that Jesus came to secure and to begin this new covenant is superior to the old covenant. Since the new covenant is established on, everybody talk to me, London, Somerset, Williamsburg, Bell County on better promises. One more time, better promises. This new covenant, you're not giving up anything. You're not losing anything. The scope of God's promises have not been limited. The extent of your hope on those promises have not been limited. The new covenant has better promises. Israel's promises were great promises. They were great for Israel, but not for us. Many of Israel's promises were conditional. Hey, that's okay, that's good. It served its purpose. God said, you do this, I'll do that. But our new covenant promises are better in the sense that they're unconditional. And that should be good news for us who are not good at keeping conditions. Now, some of you, you think you're good at conditions, but you're really not. You're just good at keeping certain conditions, the conditions you care most about, those conditions you don't care so much about. It's like, eh. But if God cares about conditions, I'll just tell you, the unfortunate part is he cares about them all. But in the new covenant, it's better promises. It's a better covenant because it's unconditional promises that aren't based on our cooperation. They're not based on our performance. They're not based on our achievement. They're based on God's faithfulness, God's truthfulness. 
You say, well, what are these promises? And, and man, I could, you know, I, 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 could, I could probably just fill up the tank and just go, 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 go. So there's so many of them and they're so great, but I'm gonna try to give you three in our time together. And, and then we're gonna wrap it up at the end and, and we're gonna have an opportunity to respond to these better promises that God has made to us, to followers of Jesus, to people who will place their faith in Christ as their Lord, their Savior, their King. So here, here's one promise, and this is good. It's better. God promises us life. He gives us a better promise of life. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 9. He says, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now, those who follow Jesus, the New Testament, Peter talks about this. It's talked about in multiple ways. Jesus even alluded to this, that people who follow Jesus, we receive an inheritance. And just like many of you, you received an inheritance from a mom, from a father, from an aunt, from an uncle. You know, they passed away, they died, and they left you an inheritance. The writer of Hebrews says that when you follow Jesus, you become part of an eternal inheritance. Uh, eternal inheritance being what? What is he saying? He's talking about the blessing of faith. He's talking about the benefit of faith and the promise connected to that faith. That the promise, the blessing and the benefit of our faith and God's promise is just not temporal. It's just not temporary. That is to say that God's promises are just not about this life only. Our promises are better. This promise of life is better because it's a promise of life that extends beyond this life to a life that awaits us beyond death. Uh, when you read the gospels, it becomes very clear to me. And I know, I, I know we're, we're digging in just a little bit. We're, we're, we're kind of, you know, we're trying to get a little deeper here. I want us to think for just a moment. Don't let me lose you. When you read the gospels and you listen to Jesus's words, it is obvious that Jesus believed and Jesus taught that human consciousness would absolutely extend beyond this time space world that we live in presently. Jesus taught and Jesus assumed and Jesus believed that everyone would live forever somewhere, that every single person made in the image of God would have a consciousness that would extend beyond this life. Now, we know this when we think about this because we who are made in the image of God, and that's all of us, we have been hardwired with eternity in our hearts. We have been hardwired with eternity in our hearts. That is to say that there is something in each of us that longs for and hopes for life beyond this life. You go back and read the earliest documented you know, parts of human history. And you can go back to the earliest civilizations and to the earliest writing and to the earliest art on caves, on temples. And the one thing that becomes extremely clear is that humanity has always had a fascination, always had a suspicion, always had a belief that somehow there was life on the other side of death. You say, where in the world did that kind of thought come from? Well, the scriptures say that God put eternity in our heart. You can dismiss it from your mind. You, you can convince yourself intellectually there's, there's no consciousness beyond death. You can convince yourself intellectually that there's no reason to believe in life after this life or life beyond death, but you cannot dismiss it from your heart because God put it in there. And there's something inside of every person that longs for, hopes for, wishes for life beyond this life. It just comes from deep in us. And so Jesus shows up 
And Jesus offers all of those who will place faith in him eternal life. You've heard these words before. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, even though they shall perish, yet shall they live. They will have eternal life. And this is just not unending ex, you know, existence because that's not all that attractive to think about. It's just gonna, gonna exist forever, exist forever, exist forever. You know, again, I've told you this before. It's like, I didn't grow up looking forward to heaven because of the way heaven was described. I mean, you know, floating on a cloud, you know, a whole bunch of white fog. And that would have kind of been like church, but, but it was kind of all, there was no color and, and it was just kind of, no. And I'm like, well, that's gonna get old. You know, that just feels whatever. It's like an unending experience, you know. You know, be like the worship pastor, get up and say, heaven's gonna be like one big song service. And I'm like, oh, Lord, Jesus. I get tired after two and a half. What are we gonna do for all of it? You know, it's like, you know, all this is just not an unending experience, an unending existence, but it's just not consciousness, but it's life. Jesus said, I'm gonna offer you a life that is eternal, lived to the fullest degree. A life that is able to absorb beauty and majesty and goodness and love and grace far beyond our ability to fathom. A life and an existence that we can't possibly measure in our finite imagination. We can only imagine it to be great and to be wonderful, but it's even greater and more wonderful than we could ever imagine. An eternal life of boundless joy, limitless peace, perfect love, an existence in a new world to come with a new body and a new mind and a new heart where no disease and no sin and no failure. That's what Jesus offers, eternal life. And it is a better promise than just eternal existence. It's a better promise than just passing off the scene and coming back as something else. It's a better promise. It's a better covenant. But not only does he offer eternal life, but he offers abundant life. This is, this is what else Jesus said. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. And just for the record, anyone or anything that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy the full life that Jesus offers and promises, that's a thief. That's an enemy. Jesus just didn't come to offer a marginal life, but a full life. And, and this is a pet peeve of mine, but I, I do, I believe it. I could be wrong, but as usual, I don't think I am, but I could be. I, I do reserve the right to be wrong, but I don't think that I am. I think that one of the worst witnesses that the church in this country and in the West over the past hundred or so years that we have given to the world is the fact that we just don't know how to live life. And we don't live life very much to the full. Jesus said, I'm coming, not that you have this marginal life, but I've come that you may have this life that lives life and soaks life up like a sponge, a life that lives to live. Jesus said, that's the life I'm offering you, a life that lives to live, that's excited to live, that anticipates life, that's eager for life, that's conscious of the beauty and the goodness all around, the love that's all around the complexity that's all around, a life that laughs and cries and imagines and creates and makes a difference and ultimately leaves a mark. Jesus said, that's why I've come, that you have life to the full, 
A life so full that it overflows into the life of their other people. People get around you and they're like, they have such a thirst for life. They have such a hunger for living. I mean, they're trying to get every last ounce of life in this life out. Jesus said, that's what I've come for. Not ho-hum, not boring, not dry, not small, not empty, but a big, full, extravagant life that savors the moments, that celebrates what's good, that lives in the moment, that celebrates experiences and opportunities, that can walk outside and appreciate the fact that the heavens declare the glory of God, that looks to the sky, that looks around, looks below, looks within, and says, this is amazing. Look at where we get to live. Look at what we get to do. It's another day. Not, it's another day. Christians ought to set the pace for what living life looks like in this world. This abundant life marked by joy and by peace and by purpose and by meaning and by gratitude and hope, a life of deep connection with other people, a life that gets up every day and says, I'm gonna live today as though it's a special occasion because it is a special occasion. That lives every day as though this could be my last so I'm gonna make it count. I'm gonna, I'm gonna soak every last moment that I can out of it. And I wanna try to get 140 years in 70 of them. I'm gonna try to live 70 out of 30 of them. I'm gonna get all that I can. Jesus said, I've come that you may have eternal life and a full life on this side of eternal life. I grew up where everybody wanted to talk about when we all get to heaven. Hey, that's good. Let's talk about the new world to come, but let's not forget about the world we're in right now where there's supposed to be life to the full. Let's not forfeit that. His promises are better. Another thing that he promises is rest. Rest. Because if you're soaking up life, you better know how to rest. Listen to, what, listen to what the writer says in Hebrews 4. He says, God's promise of entering his rest still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. He, he, he uses this idea of rest. And you say, what in the world is he talking about? He, he's talking about in the big scheme of things that there's no rest within religion. Religion always says, do more, do better, work harder. Do better, work harder. Do better, work harder. Do better, work harder. That's the version of Christianity a lot of us grew up on. Work harder, do better. Work harder. What do I need to do? Work harder, do better. What's God's will for my life? Work harder, do better. And it's like, oh my goodness. Because in religion, there's always something to do. There's always a sacrifice to offer. There's always a prayer to make. There's always something I need to start doing. There's always something I need to stop doing. There's always something I need to improve on. And it's just constant, work harder, do better, work harder, do better. You say, well, is, is, is that not the Christian faith? No, it's not. The writer of Hebrews, actually, it's great. You should just read the whole book. I, I don't have time to tell you about it, but he, he uses the idea of God creating the world. And then when God created the world, when God finished creating the world, you know what God did? God rested. Why did God rest? Because the work was finished. And when God rested, you know what he was able to do as he rested? Appreciate the good work of creation. He was able to admire the goodness and the beauty and the wonder and the complexity of what he 
worked on, and finished. And it was when he rested, he said, this is good. Because there was no work left to do. The work was finished. And just as God, this is the point, just as God rested and was able to appreciate the goodness and to admire the goodness and the majesty and the complexity, the same is true for you and the same is true for me. Until we learn to rest in what Christ has done for us, the finished work of what Christ has done for us, And it being finished means there's no more work to do. No work for you, no work for me in the sense of gaining God's approval, gaining God's love, obtaining salvation, working for my forgiveness, bargaining with God, that Christ did all the work on the cross. And it's not until I rest in that can I fully appreciate that. It's not until I rest in that can I fully admire the beauty and the majesty and the glory of what Christ has done for me and what Christ has done for you. While I'm working to do more and work harder and do better and work harder to do better and I'm so busy, I can't appreciate what God's already done for me because I'm trying to do something for myself that God's already done. Instead of resting in grace, resting in mercy, This is what Jesus said. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened from doing better and working harder, and I will give you rest. And to the immoral and the irreligious, in Jesus' audience, this was a breath of fresh air. If you're tired of the weight of religion, if you're exhausted because you never know where you stand with God, if you're constantly feeling defeated, because you don't measure up and because you can't check all the boxes and because somebody else seems to be better at this than you are and somebody else seems to be holier in this way than you are and somebody seems to be more righteous than you are and you just walk around feeling frustrated and defeated all the time and you can't rest, Jesus said, come to me. If you're tired of this reoccurring guilt and shame stuff, that's got you hating yourself, that's got you hating other people, that's got you so unsettled, and so restless, if you're constantly tired because of the weight of condemnation, whether your own on yourself or somebody else's on you, if you're frustrated with your inconsistency, one day you're good, one day you're not, one day you're on it, the next next day you're not, he said, come to me. If you're exhausted because you value yourself, always comparing yourself to somebody else's performance, somebody else's spirituality, somebody else's holiness, somebody else's righteousness, somebody else's knowledge. If you're tired of that, Jesus said, come to me. If you're always angry at you because of what you're not doing that you should be doing and what you're doing that you shouldn't be doing or angry at other people, who won't cooperate with what you think they ought to be doing or how they should be living, come to me. I'm gonna give you rest. I will give you rest. There's a different way to live. It's a better way to live. You know what rest means? There's no work to be done. You know why there's no work to be done? Jesus finished it. There's no conditions to live up to. You know why? Jesus met them. There's nothing to earn. You know why? Jesus paid for it. There's nothing that I have to keep on because he's got a hold of me. I'm in his hand. And the Father's hand, who is greater than all, has got his hand. 
and I'm safe, and I'm secure. I'm not trying to hold on to anything. I'm not trying to keep my salvation because I didn't get it to begin with, and I can't keep it if I didn't get it to begin with. I have no reason to pretend because he knows me and he loves me. He knew what he was getting into, and he got into it anyway. He just says, you know what you need to do? You need to rest. And when you rest, you can appreciate it. And you can be grateful for it and you can celebrate it and you can relish in it and you can glory in it in a way that you will never be able to until you rest in what Christ has done. So stop trying to get him to love you. He loves you already. Quit trying to get him to accept you. He accepted you already. Trying to try, quit trying to win his approval. He's approved of you already. That's what Jesus said. And you know what? Some of you right now, you're so threatened by that. You're made so uncomfortable by that. And so was Jesus' audience, and that's why some of them killed him. But he says, I'm inviting you to rest. Religion can control you because it keeps you from resting. It keeps you working. It keeps you doubting. It keeps you frustrated. It keeps you not knowing where you stand with God. But Jesus said, I've come to give you rest. So take my yoke upon you. And learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find what? Rest for your soul. He says, I'm gentle. You don't have to fear me. I'm humble. I'm not gonna look down on you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is there a yoke? Yeah, but it's easy. Is there a burden? Yeah, but it's light. My yoke isn't hard and my burden isn't heavy, Jesus says. And we should just sit with that for a moment. Jesus did all the heavy lifting so he could invite us to rest. And then you know what he said? I want you to follow me. I want you to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. But you know what? I'm going to give you my spirit. And the same spirit that raised me from the dead is going to live in you. And it's going to help you, assist you, empower you to do what you cannot do on your own. But I want you to come to me and I want you to rest. Because there's freedom in that and there's rest in that. Now, I told you there's a lot of others, but here's where we're going to end it. And the last promise in the book of Hebrews, this better covenant with better promises, this last one, there's life, there's rest, and there's help. There's help for the moments when life happens. There's help when your humanity gets in the way or somebody else's humanity gets in the way. There's help for you in the seasons that you're carrying a heavy burden. There's help for you when you're confused, when you can't make up from down, when you're not sure what's right, what's wrong. When you're fearful, there's help. If you're anxious, if you're anxious about your life, if you're anxious about life, if you're anxious about the world, the state of the world, the affairs of the world, what could happen, what might happen, what will happen to you, what will happen to your family. If you're anxious, there's help. If you're depressed and you're struggling through the dark season of depression, there's help. If you're struggling with a sin, if you're struggling with thoughts, if you're struggling to keep your head above water, there's help. If you're wondering, there's help. If you're full of doubt, there's help. If you're hurting, there's help. If you're grieving, there's help. If you're sick, there's help. Jesus has promised us there's help. And it's a better promise that's all locked up in a better covenant. And this is how the writer of Hebrews puts it. Therefore, 
Because of this, because he's invited us to life and because he's invited us to eternal life and abundant life and because he's invited us to rest in what Christ has done. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. And then I love these four words, just as we are yet he did not sin. Sometimes one of the greatest frustrations in my life is I, I don't feel like anyone understands me. And I think probably all of us feel that way to a certain degree. It, it's one of the disconnects. It's, it's one of the frustrations. It's one of the things. It's like, I just sometimes wish that someone could understand what I'm thinking, the circus between these ears. I mean, it could be a traveling show or, or, or the, you know, just the thoughts or the feelings or the conflict, you know, all the complicated enigmas that make you, you and make me, me. And all the thoughts and all the feelings and all the things. And we have this deep desire for somebody to understand us, to understand our story, to understand what we've seen and what we've heard and what we've experienced and how we feel, what we're struggling and how we're thinking and how it doesn't make sense to us or how it does make sense to us. And we just wish somebody could understand it. Just as you are, just as I am. He knows you and he knows me. He's been where you've been. He perfectly understands you. He perfectly understands me. He's felt the way you felt. He knows what fear, he knows what anxiety is. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to wrestle with the will of God. He gets us. Come to think of it, that'd make a good campaign. He gets us, he understands us. So let us approach then God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. Let us approach with confidence. No reason to be reluctant. No reason to fear rejection. I'm forgiven. And the writer of Hebrews said in another place, he's promised that he remembers my sin no more. I am justified. Me and God are good. I'm his son. You're his daughter. I'm resting in that. I've received that life that's both eternal and abundant. God's not like some of the people we know in our lives that aren't very approachable. Some people you dare not tell your story to. Some people you dare not tell your struggle to. Some people you dare not tell your thoughts or your feelings to. You're, fear, you're fearful of their refusal. You're fearful of their judgment. You're fearful of their response or for their lack of understanding. But you don't have to fear that with God. You can bring it all. You can tell him all. He loves you and he says, come confidently, not fearfully, come confidently, knowing that you've been invited to come. Take a step in my direction so that you can receive mercy, compassion, tenderness, understanding. God says, I have the power to punish, but I don't. I have the right to judge, but I don't. Because that punishment and that judgment was bore on the cross on the shoulders of God's son. So there's no punishment. There's no fear to be had. It's just confidence. And then he says, grace, to find grace to help in the time of need. Mercy is withholding what we deserve. It's giving us something better than we deserve. That's grace. We receive mercy and we also receive grace. No strings attached, unconditional, unmerited, no matter who you are or what you've done. I'll leave it with this. I couldn't have said it any better. 
I've given a portion of this to you before, but I, I revisit this all the time. And when it comes to mercy and grace and come and find help, Brennan Manning put it, puts it this way. He says, the compassion of Jesus is the compassion of Almighty God. And Jesus says to your heart and mine, don't ever be so foolish as to measure my compassion for you in terms of your compassion for one another. Don't ever be so silly as to compare your thin, pallid, wavering, moody, depending on smooth circumstances, human compassion with mine. For I am God as well as man. When you read in the gospels that Jesus was moved with compassion, it is saying that his gut was wrenched, his heart torn open, and the most vulnerable part of his being laid bare. The ground of all being shook, the source of all life trembled, the heart of all love burst open, and the unfathomable, de unfathomable depths of the relentless tenderness was laid bare. Your Christian life and mine doesn't make any sense unless in the depth of our being, we believe that Jesus not only knows what hurts us, but knowing seeks us out whatever our poverty, whatever our pain. His plea to his people is, come now, wounded, frightened, angry, lonely, empty, and I'll meet you where you live. And I'll love you as you are, not as you should be, because you're never gonna be as you should be. Do you really believe this? With all the wrong turns you made in your past, the mistakes, the moments of selfishness, dishonesty, and degraded love, do you really believe that Jesus Christ loves you? Not the person next to you, not the church, not the world, but he loves you. Beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity, that he loves you in the morning sun and in the evening rain without caution, without regret, without boundary, without limit. And my word is this, no matter what's gone down, he can't stop loving you. This is the Jesus of the gospels. A Jesus who says, I have a word for you. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin, shame, dishonesty, and degraded love that has darkened your past. Right now, I know your shallow faith, your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship. And my word is this. I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are, not as you should be because you're never gonna be as you should be. Do you believe that Jesus and the Father loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity, that he loves you in the morning sun and in the evening rain, that he loves you when your intellect denies it, your emotions refuse it, your whole being rejects it? Do you believe that God loves you without condition or reservation and loves you this moment as you are and not as you should be? For he gives grace a grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wages as the gaining drunk who shows up at 10 till five. A grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal reeking of sin and wraps him up and decides to throw a party of no ifs, ands, or buts, indiscriminate compassion that works without asking anything of me. Grace that is sufficient even though we huff and puff with all of our might and try to find someone or something his grace can't cover. His grace is enough. Jesus is enough. He has one single relentless stance towards us. He loves us. He is the only God man has ever heard of who loves sinners. And then he says this, my friend, if this is not good news to you, you have never understood the gospel of grace. 
Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. That's a promise that God made. That's a promise that you can hold him accountable to, that you can come to his throne with all confidence to find help in his mercy and in his grace in the season of your struggle, in the season of your sin, in the season of your disobedience, in the season of your discouragement or your depression or your wondering or your doubting. This is what he promises. He promises you help. So if you're here today and you want to give up and you're struggling and you're thinking about giving, giving it all away, you're thinking about walking away, if you're here and your life doesn't seem to have meaning or purpose, if you can't decide what's up or what's down or what's real or what's not, he says, come, come with confidence to my throne and I will give you mercy and I will give you grace to help you stand strong, dig in, run your race, carry the load, persevere through the storm to give you the life and the rest and the help that you need. The writer of Hebrews would say to all of us that on the other side of the Lord, I need you is help. Sometimes one of the hardest things to do in life is to say, Lord, I need you. Don't let what's hard rob you of what's good and what's best for you. We're getting ready to sing a song. And I want to invite you that if you're in a dark season, you're in a dark place, a promise that you can hold God accountable to is that you can come boldly with confidence to his throne and he will help you with mercy and grace to see it through, to get to the other side of where he's taking you to. He's not gonna take it away perhaps, he's not gonna make everything better, but he does offer mercy and grace. He does promise help. Heavenly Father, as we get ready to sing together, I pray that if anybody in any of our churches are just struggling, they're in that dark place, that difficult place, that, that complicated, conflicting place, that place where they're thinking about walking away, they're thinking about giving up, they've lost a sense of purpose, lost a sense of meaning, They've lost their vigor and their excitement and their passion for life. They've not been able to rest in what you've done. They're so exhausted, so frustrated. God, I pray that you give us the boldness just to step out and come boldly to your throne and claim the promise that you'll give us the mercy and the grace that we need to help us in our time of need. So God, for those who need to respond, I pray that they find a place somewhere in the front pastors will be here. Maybe they want somebody to pray with them, but maybe they just want to find a place and they just want to bow their knee and they just want to say, Lord, I need you. In this moment, in this season, in this hour, I need you. And God, we receive the promise of mercy and grace to help us in the time of need. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.